Chapter fifty nine of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. While we are still young, we feel a kind of pride, a sort of fierce pleasure in any important experience, such as we have read of or heard of in the lives of others, no matter how painful. It was this pride, this pleasure, which Beaton now felt in realizing that the toils of fate were about him, that between him and a future of which Christine Dreyfus must be the genius, there was nothing but the will, the mood, the fancy of a girl who had not given him the hope that either could ever again be in his favour. He had nothing to trust to, in fact, but his knowledge that he had once had them all. She did not deny that but neither did she conceal that he had flung away his power over them, and she had told him that they could never be his again. A man knows that he can love and wholly cease to love, not once merely, but several times. He recognizes the fact in regard to himself, both theoretically and practically, but in regard to women he cherishes the superstition of the romances that love is once for all and for ever. It was because Beaton would not believe that Alma Leighton, being a woman, could put him out of her heart after suffering him to steal into it, that he now hoped anything from her, and she had been so explicit when they had last spoke of that affair that he did not hope much. He said to himself that he was going to cast himself on her mercy, to take whatever chance of life, love, and work there was in her having the smallest pity on him. If she would have none, then there was but one thing he could do, marry Christine and go abroad. He did not see how he could bring this alternative to bear upon Alma. Even if she knew what he would do in case of a final rejection, he had grounds for fearing she would not care. But he brought it to bear upon himself, and it nerved him to a desperate courage. He could hardly wait for evening to come, before he went to see her. When it came, it seemed to have come too soon. He had wrought himself thoroughly into the conviction that he was in earnest and that everything depended upon her answer to him, but it was not till he found himself in her presence and alone with her that he realized the truth of his conviction. Then the influences of her grace, her gaiety, her arch beauty, above all her good sense, penetrated his soul like a subtle intoxication, and he said to himself that he was right, he could not live without her. These attributes of hers were what he needed to win him, to cheer him, to charm him, to guide him. He longed so to please her, to ingratiate himself with her, that he attempted to be light like her in his talk, but lapsed into abysmal absences and gloomy recesses of introspection. "'What are you laughing at?' he asked, suddenly starting for one of these. "'What you were thinking of?' "'It's nothing to laugh at. Do you know what I'm thinking of?' Don't tell if it's dreadful. Oh, I dare say you wouldn't think it's dreadful, he said with bitterness. It's simply the case of a man who has made a fool of himself and sees no help of retrieval in himself. Can anyone else help a man unmake a fool of himself? she asked with a smile. Yes, in a case like this. Dear me, this is very interesting. She did not ask him what the case was, but he was launched now, and he pressed on. I am the man who has made a fool of himself. Oh, and you can help me out if you will, Alma. I wish you could see me as I really am. Do you, Mr. Beaton? Perhaps I do. No, you don't. You formulated me in a certain way, 
and you won't allow for the change that takes place in every one. You have changed. Why shouldn't I? Has this to do with your having made a fool of yourself? Yes. Oh, then I don't see how you have changed. She laughed, and he, too, ruefully. You're cruel. Not but what I deserve your mockery. But the change was not from the capacity of making a fool of myself. I suppose I shall always do that, more or less. Unless you help me. Alma, why can't you have a little compassion? You know that I must always love you. Nothing makes me doubt that like you're saying it, Mr. Beaton. But now you've broken your word. You are to blame for that. You knew I couldn't keep it. Yes, I'm to blame. I was wrong to let you come after that. And so I forgive you for speaking to me in that way again. But it's perfectly impossible and perfectly useless for me to hear you any more on that subject. And so, good-bye. She rose, and he perforce with her. And do you mean it, he asked, for ever? For ever. This is truly the last time I will ever see you, if I can help it. Oh, I feel sorry enough for you, she said, with a glance at his face. I do believe you are in earnest, but it's too late now. Don't let us talk about it any more. But we shall, if we meet, and so... And so, good-bye. Well, I've nothing more to say, and I might as well say that. I think you've been very good to me. It seems to me as if you had been, shall I say it, trying to give me a chance. Is that so? She dropped her eyes and did not answer. You found it was no use? Well, I thank you for trying. It's curious to think that I once had your trust, your regard, and now I haven't it. You don't mind my remembering that I had? It'll be some little consolation, and I believe it will be some help. I know I can't retrieve the past now. It is too late. It seems too preposterous, perfectly lurid, that I could have been going to tell you what a tangle I got myself in, and to ask you to help untangle me. I must choke in the infernal coil, but I'd like to have the sweetness of your pity in it, whatever it is. She put out her hand. Whatever it is, I do pity you. I said that. Thank you. He kissed the hand she gave him, and went. He had gone on such terms before. Was it now for the last time? She believed it was. She felt in herself a satiety, a fatigue, in which his good looks, his invented airs and poses, his real trouble were all alike repulsive. She did not acquit herself of the wrong of having let him think she might yet have liked him as she once did, but she had been honestly willing to see whether she could. It had mystified her to find that when they first met in New York, after their summer in St. Barnaby, she cared nothing for him. She had expected to punish him for his neglect, and then fancy him as before, but she did not. More and more she saw him selfish and mean, weak-willed, narrow-minded, and hard-hearted, and aimless with all his talent. She admired his talent in proportion as she learned more of artists, and perceived how uncommon it was. But she said to herself that if she were going to devote herself to art, she would do it at first hand. She was perfectly serene and happy in her final rejection of Beaton. He had worn out not only her fancy, but her sympathy, too. This was what her mother would not believe when Alma reported the interview to her. She would not believe it was the last time they should meet. Death itself can hardly convince us that it is the last time of anything, of everything between ourselves and the dead. 
Well, Alma, she said, I hope you'll never regret what you've done. You may be sure I shall not regret it. If ever I'm low-spirited about anything, I'll think of giving Mr. Beaton his freedom, and that will cheer me up. And don't you expect to get married? Do you intend to be an old maid? demanded her mother, in the bonds of the superstition women have so long been under, to the effect that every woman must wish to get married, if for no other purpose than to avoid being an old maid. Well, mamma, said Alma, I intend being a young one for a few years yet, and then I'll see. If I meet the right person, all well and good. If not, not. But I shall pick and choose as a man does. I won't merely be picked and chosen. You can't help yourself. You may be very glad if you are picked and chosen. What nonsense, mamma! A girl can get any man she wants if she goes about it the right way. And when my fated fairy prince comes along, I shall just make furious love to him and grab him. Of course I shall make a decent pretense of talking in my sleep. I believe it's done that way more than half the time. The fated fairy prince wouldn't see the princess in nine cases out of ten if she didn't say something. He would go mooning along after the maids of honour. Mrs. Leighton tried to look unspeakable horror, but she broke down and laughed. Well, you are a strange girl, Alma. I don't know about that, but one thing I do know, Mamma, and that is that Prince Beaton isn't the FFP for me. How strange you are, Mamma! Don't you think it would be perfectly disgusting to accept a person you didn't care for, and let him go on and love you and marry you? It's sickening. Why, certainly, Alma. It's only because I know you did care for him once. And now I don't. And he didn't care for me once, and now he does, and so we're quits. If I could believe— You had better brace up and try, Mamma. for, as Mr. Fulkerson says, it's as sure as guns. From the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, he's loathsome to me, and he keeps getting loathsomer. Ah! Uh, good night. End of chapter 59